that is done. That he will want for posterity. All right, cool. Uh, how's everybody doing? Um, so I'm in Dallas today. I'm in our office in Dallas and I, I came back from New York, uh, over the weekend. And yesterday we got, uh, the first snow that we've had in like eight years. So as I was driving through East Texas, it was snowing like huge flakes and stuff and it stuck. And that's just not normal. And today in the Dallas morning news, if you guys just want to know how ironic it is that we got snow in the Dallas morning news, there was actually an article telling us how to drive in the slush, you know, Hey guys. So, I mean, that's how rare it is. Like the newspaper actually told us how to drive in the, in the snow. So, uh, but I'm in the office in Dallas today and, uh, today I think we're going to cover six, seven questions. Um, I'm actually going to do a little commentary on OEE. Also a little thing I sketched to kind of go over, but if you have any questions, we've pulled out stuff from the discord server and, um, we, uh, and then we'll answer anything that's in the oh, chat that we can real answer. quick, real quick community updates, quickly. uh, frameworks university. If you guys haven't heard that launch is pushed back to next week on yeah. the 21st and our mentorship call is this week. It's not too late to join mentorship. So I'll have a link below sign up now and join us for our call on the 14th. And, um, go ahead and uh, send a shout out to everyone in the, in the discord server, please to remind them that we're live right now. Um, yeah. And, um, also the step one guys who are, I think the nine, is it nine Vaughn that are ready to do the practical? Yes. Um, practical is done. It just needs the final approval. It's like number eight on the to-do list. So if we if I get through number eight today, then it'll be disseminated today. Um, but the delivery has been pushed back to the 21st. You'll have plenty of time to, uh, to get through it. Um, uh, enterprise mentorship, we're still working on, you know, how we can do mentorship for, um, an entire organization. So just like a single membership, but anybody who works for you can do the, can go through mentorship. Um, and then one of the things we're going to do is we're going to go over, um, iBite and the UNS gateway. So there was a whole, you guys, you'll know the, you know, we, in fact, I'll talk about UNS Gateway right now. So the UNS Gateway is a is a uh, product that um, uh, we de- I developed like a year and a half ago, um, which was base. My entire goal was I wanted to be able to take, I wanted to be able to connect to any OPC UA server, and I wanted to be able to just take all the work that had been done in that OPC server and convert it to. Uh, MQTT, any flavor that I wanted. So I wanted, and I, I wanted it to support Docker. So I want to be able to create multiple instances and I could, you know, select a certain spaces in the OPC server, that kind of thing, if I wanted. And it was, it was designed to speed up our integration. So it was designed, Hey, we've already got this existing infrastructure of with an OPC server that can be kept where top server, whatever, or I've got many OPC servers, which is really common in a plant. You'll see like, an OPC server in this area and one over in that area. And, you know, only this engineer knows about this one and only that engineer owns about that one and, you know, that kind of thing. And so what we wanted to do is centralize all that data. So the, the UNS gateway didn't have a name. It was just a product that we developed, which, which we had a, you know, a goal that we wanted to accomplish, which was we wanted to connect to an OPC server and we wanted to be able to convert that to whatever flavor of MQTT we wanted and publish it 
into a unified namespace. Now, people may ask the question, well, you know, why wouldn't you use like the I IoT gateway from Kepware, for example, if you're a Kep, Kep server guy? Well, the answer is, is that the IoT gateway isn't, doesn't do exactly what we want it to do. So in OPC terms, the, the, o, the IoT gateway is an object in the OPC server instance, and that object has variables underneath it. So in, in OPC speak, objects are the, are the higher level objects in, in the OPC namespace, and the variables generally are your tags. Not always, but they're generally your tags. And you can go, you can grab any node any node object in OPC and you can, you know, using certain methods, you can browse the namespace underneath it. So like, say I have a, a node that is um, a specific channel in uh, an OPC server, I can grab that channel and then using the correct method, I can browse that channel and then I, I can iteratively browse all the way down until I get to all my tags. So what we wanted to be able to do is just want to be able to connect to an, uh, an endpoint, an OPC endpoint, and we want to be able to just convert everything in there to MQTT. There's no product out there that does that, right? E even HiByte doesn't do that. HiByte, you have to say which parts of the namespace you want to use in your models, right? There's not a mechanism to just go, hey, man, um, I want to um, make sure we grab that unified namespace question that just came in. Um, you know, hey, I, I just want to grab everything and I want to publish it. Now, the reason why they don't do that in Kepware, the IoT gateway. You're limited in the IoT gateway in Kepware. You're limited to what you can publish. You basically, the way it's set up is you've got to go in, grab the tags you want to publish, drag them over, you know, drag them into the IoT gateway. You know, how, where do you want to send it? What's the broker? How often do you want to send it? That kind of thing. And, and then it'll publish in a JSON. And then on the other side, you need to you need to parse that. Now, one of the beauties of the IoT gateway in Kepware is you can create a custom name names uh, JSON structure. You can do that so that say I've already got a, a parser that parses a type of JSON, you can just let, recreate that in the IoT gateway. But the IoT gateway doesn't do what we wanted to do, which was hit an OPC server, convert everything, and publish it over MQTT. Now, that's what the UNS gateway does. And that's the only thing it does. The only thing it does is, is it connects to an OPC server, it converts the entire namespace, and it and it publishes it to a broker. It's only got three fields to configure. It's very slick. It's very fast. It's super lightweight. I suspect that the reason other people haven't done this is because they can't figure out how to make it run fast enough. That's what I suspect is the problem. Because I know that when I was writing the code, um, that was an issue I ran into like, and you know, the, the trick, if you will, was, you know, basically thread management was the, and, and not everyone's good at thread management in software development. And so, and at the end of the day, that was the issue. If you wanted to be able to pick up things fast enough. Right. So what the US UNS gateway does is it hits an OPC server, converts the entire namespace and publishes it over what, you know, I can say, I want to, I want to structure it spark plug a, and it basically takes the entire namespace. It doesn't send the difference between a and B spark plug a and B is spark plug B has support for like UDTs and templates, right? Whereas spark plug a does not have that spark plug a treats everything as if it's a tag, just a flat tag. So if I want to hit an a or B, or I want to do version 3.1.1 or version four, or version five of MQTT, I can do that. 
That's all it was. That's all it is. What we decided was, and now I don't want to minimize it. I mean, it was very difficult to write. And if you compare one of the things we did during benchmarking was I took an OPC server and I pulled that OPC server every one second, every single tag. And then I did the same thing using the UNS gateway. And it was like, uh, you know, one uh, 18th, the, the payload. So when you looked over the course of like one hour, how much bandwidth did we, you know, how much bandwidth mm -hmm. did we use pulling the OPC server versus using um, the UNS gateway? It was really, it was one eighteenth. Now that part, part of that had to do with the mm -hmm. types of tags we were pulling and stuff like that, but they were exactly the same. It was literally the exact same name structure it was, I actually, it was the same OPC server. One difference was I had a OPC client pulling everything. And in the other instance, I had a UNS gateway next to the server, pushing everything to the broker. That was really the difference. And then we, we used the tool to sniff the wire and, you know, it was just much, much, much more lightweight. I think the issue, I think the reason that all these gateways, like even if you look in the easy, uh, the easy rack PLC by easy automation, they have an MQTT uh, client in there and they can, and you can send it flat MQTT or you can send it, um, uh, spark plug B, you still have to select the tags that you want to publish. And I, and you're limited to like 256 tags. So, and, and I suspect the reason that they do that is because they, they don't want to use the resources for all that scanning. Right. So when everyone is building these gateways, it doesn't matter who they are. Everybody who's building some type of MQTT gateway is there is no mechanism to just take an entire namespace, convert it, and publish it. Um, and and that's so what the, the UNS that's what the UNS gateway does. Go ahead. What would the that. use case for that be? You have an existing infrastructure, right? I've spent millions and millions of dollars over the last five years putting implementing an OPC infrastructure, and then all of a sudden I'm ready to like go ahead and start putting everything in a data lake in the cloud. Mm, and then you we're like do that over OPC. You want to do that over MQTT. Correct. And, the, and so what happens is they'll, they'll try it. You're right. They'll try to publish everything and it doesn't work. They hit, oh, what's, what's going on with our network? Why, why do we have so many instances of TPC exhaustion across all these nodes? And, you know, they start going through and they hit this critical mass and they can't get everything to the data lake. They got data loss. They're losing integrity. They don't understand why it's working, why it's not working. And so what we do is we just go in and basically put the UNS gateway right next to the OPC server, convert everything, and then publish so you it have up. A, you have seven. an enterprise that has five plants and each five plants has OPC server. You'd want to connect those but you're not doing any formatting during that connection and no, that's no modeling, no nothing. Right. That's so that's the difference. So in the way the, and so that's the way that we kind of envision this working is, you know, so, you know, there were, we had this discussion, right. About, you know, what's the difference between UNS gateway and high bite? Well, there's a huge difference between the two UNS and gateway only does a really specific functionality, right? It, 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 ha it serves a very specific purpose. It, whereas Hybyte is a has many many connectors. It talks at lots of things other than OPC. It does it does high level modeling. It does mid level modeling. It, it has multiple trigger events, so you can decide how you want to trigger um, an event inside of um, Hybyte. I mean, it has all these other features, right? Whereas the UNS gateway is only designed to hit that server 
and convert everything um, into MQTT. Now, part of it's been tested with Docker, so you can you can spin up multiple instances of it. So instead of creating like in a in a in an IoT gateway, instead of going in and creating multiple connections, what we would do is create multiple instances in a container. So under the hood, that each there's a there's a container for each connection, for each connection uh, to different brokers connection to different OPC servers, different servers, same servers. So let's say that what I wanted to do is I wanted to filter one of the fields is a filter. Let's say I want to I want to filter on a specific node in the OPC UA namespace, but the still the functionality is the same. Go to this node, take everything underneath it, and convert it to to you know MQTT. Right, that's all that's going to happen, and and I can filter down to a node. I can I have that ability, cool. so okay, I cool. could create multiple instances right in a container. Again, there's no overlap between Hybyte and UNS. We see it; they, they're going to work together. Right. In fact, what's most likely going to happen, the way we see it happening, is the UNS gateway is going to connect to the OPC server and send everything into Hybyte for additional modeling. That's how we see it. But the uh, how concerned should one be about time synchronization of process data? Um, that's part of the reason that you're using, you know, there the that's part of the reason that you're using, um, you know, MQTT is so it, it you know let's say I I on the process data time synchronization, um, and the question actually it's a good question and I'll answer it right now because it it applies to what we're doing. Part of the reason that we use a tool like Highbyte, part of the reason we use Ignition Edge, part of the reason we use Factory Studio on the edge is one of the biggest challenges you have in machine learning, okay, is that for process control, the timestamp of a data point, that is when the value changed, okay, value and timestamp is, is unique to that sensor, okay? So let's say I've got, I've got two two values I'm monitoring. One is the, the pressure. Um, one is the pressure of, you know, some, um, water line. And the other one is, um, the flow of, of that line. Okay. Those sensors change at different intervals. Okay. And let's say I want to write a machine learning algorithm. That's going to, that's going to find a relationship for, you know, every value X of pressure, what is, what is my estimated value Y of flow, right? Okay. That is a linear regression you might write in machine learning. One of the very first things that you have to do is, you know, and people call it lots of different things, but it's called scrubbing the data, normalizing the data. What you have to, the, one of the very first things you have to do is you have to take the two values of the two sensors that are measuring your data points and you got to get the data, the values lined up on the same timestamps. Okay. That's normalization. Part of the reason, and the reason why is because I, when I see value A, when I see value, uh, or when I see value A on sensor A, um, it may be, the, the, that timestamp may be nine one hundredths of a second different than on sensor B, value B, uh, value A of sensor B, right? But the next time they're collected, it may not be nine one hundredths, it may be four one hundredths, okay? And it, may, it makes the rising and falling edges of these values fuzzy. And it takes the, the machine learning models much longer 
to find the relationship between the two values because they're not on the same rising and falling edges. Okay. So one of the things that we do, and this is one of the big things that Greengrass, AWS Greengrass is used on the edge when you're collecting like high, super high speed measurement data coming off of machines is you're using AWS Greengrass when you're running this Lambda function to get all the values lined up on the same time series so that it's not fuzzy. If I were to look at them, they would be plotted on top of one another on the chart, as opposed to just a little bit left, a little lagging, a little, a little um, early for a couple of data points. You want to do this normalization, right? And that's part of the reason we use a gateway. Part of the reason we use a gateway is to synchronize time. That's one of the reasons that we don't, and, and that's part of the reason we use a unified namespace as well, right? It, 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 it's the exact same reason because we want to get that data cleaned up. Now the historian cares about the true rising and falling edge, but for machine learning and for data, any type of data analysis or reporting, you really want those things to be lined up. And a, a really good example is um, when, I'm, when I'm writing a report and my report is a, a expense and revenue report, okay? I will do an expense and a revenue report for, um, you know, January 11th. And I'll have two values. I'll have what were my total expenses that day and what were my total, what's the total revenue. But if I had run that report during the day, the, I may have had expenses going out and revenue coming in at different times during the day. Okay. And so if I ran my report, if what I did was I said, show me revenue and expense for every second of the day, that's going to be a really fuzzy, loud report. I wouldn't, it's going to be very difficult for me to do any type of analysis on that. So what I really want to do is aggregate it on a, a specific day. And that's really what normalization is. Normalization of data is, you know, for every value that changed over the last second, let's normalize it and get its timestamp on the second. Or let's say we're collecting every five seconds. Let's get all of the timestamps lined up for that five-second group. This is the value we're going to use for that five-second group. And I think Flow Software calls it, um, crap, they have a term for it too. They call it something different. But Flow Software does the exact same thing. Uh, they, they call it buckets. They create a bucket of time, and they have a value in each bucket of time. OEE does the same thing. So um, hopefully I answered that question he asked about time synchronization. In, in when you were, you know, think about in terms of unified namespace, we don't care about the real time that the value changed. Um, and by the way, the value that we get <laughs> isn't the real time. The sensor has latency, right? The PLC has latency, right? So oh, I wanted to talk about RTOS and, uh, you know, why you want to use a PLC for automation. I'm not going to do that. All right. So anyway, the point I want to talk about, there was a bunch of questions came in. Hey, what's the difference between UNS Gateway and Highbyte? There's a lot of difference. They work together. UNS Gateway serves a, just a very specific functionality. And that's the gateway that we're going to turn over to the community. We, you know, we want to turn it over to the couple, community and have them do something. A couple people okay. did ask in the Discord what happened to the logo. Do you want to touch on that or do you want to just move on? No, I want to touch on it. So, um, so we're doing a lot. We never planned to do anything with this. So it was just a thing we used internally. By the way, it, it, it decreased our integration time. I think we started dropping something like 160 hours, engineering hours from every project because we were, we're using this tool. So 
um, I mean, it plays a huge role. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it, it, it makes you much more competitive in your, in your bids. If you're not having to go in and do all that stuff from, from the edge, like every, you know, every integration you're having to make new connections and all that stuff. So here's what happened. There was no real, there was no name for this and there was no, um, and there was no uh, logo or anything like that. So we decided to call it the UNS gateway. Um, and, um, and then Zach had, we had a contractor who was putting together a logo for us and they submitted the logo to us. And like the morning that we put it in the discord, he, it came in and Zach published it to the discord, which wasn't supposed to happen. It, we hadn't reviewed it. We didn't do any due diligence. We didn't do, we didn't look to see if anyone had that logo. And it turned out that logo that we posted looks a lot like the logo for the high bite intelligence hub. It was basically the same logo, except they have like a red dot in the center. Now, I don't know if we would have caught it because I think right now, if I asked you guys, what is high bites intelligence hubs logo, you're not going to be able to tell me because the only place you can really see it is like when you do the install or also when you go to the web server, it'll show up in the tab. Um, but we didn't know, we didn't know it was the same. So we dropped it. Once we realized we were using a logo that looked a lot right. like theirs. We, I, I we felt like it. I felt really bad because I didn't, I didn't know either. And then we didn't want there to be any confusion because Highbyte has been such a large player in our community and we yeah. want nothing but to support Highbyte. They've been really active in the discord. Shout out to Omar. And uh, you know, so up, that's why we just wanted to bring that up. How's it going, Andrew? Good to see you, man. Uh, and Michael, Dr. Oh, I have a, I actually have a quick shout out, a community, oh, boy. uh, a recognition. Yeah. This is huge. Actually. Can I yeah. share? Well, what's, who's the shout out? Let me put it in my list. Uh, ja, uh, Jatin, J-A-T-I-N. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Go a ahead post on LinkedIn. I want to share. Okay. So, so, uh, Jatin, Jatin and I, you know, we connect with a lot of people from the community here and, you know, over time we build relationships. And so Jatin actually, uh, well, actually I was going to show this one here first. Um, we had connected back in February. Hey, thanks for creating such a great content on the YouTube channel. And we had been connected. He had been looking for a internship. So I uh, wanted to give him a shout out. He actually did just get an internship with Tesla. And so that's really exciting. I mean, this post went pretty viral, but congratulations, some, dude. he actually did get <laughs> an internship with Tesla. So I wanted to give him so a shout that, out. So that Model S, the, that model, once you take a, if you do a deep dive on the Model S line, uh, if you've been watching our content, everything should be very familiar because, uh, that's, what's under the hood. There is a unified namespace extending out to MES. Um, all right, cool. Very cool. Congratulations, Jonathan. All right, let's get to our question. So Dan 24 B, uh, this was in, I think unified namespace. So this is a good question. So he said, Hey all I'm working in a water utility, developing OT digital IOT strategy, all the videos and contents. Great. It really helped expand my views. One thing I'd like to understand is what people see as the differences and similarities between the unified namespace when applied to a manufacturing or a utility environment. The answer to that question is it's exactly the same. You still, you can use ISA 95 and utility. So whether you're electrical or solar or whatever, um, you know, water, wastewater, you name it, it's going to be the same. The organization, the ISA 95 organizational structure is the same. Um, in an asset rich environment where you have many thousands of assets spread out over thousands of square miles, does the UNS approach still work? The answer is, does it still work? In fact, I would argue the only way that you can effectively integrate in that type of situation is using a unified namespace. And in fact, 
when we originally developed the concept in 2013, it was on a pro I'm going to go over the project that we did this on. I'm going to actually draw out what the architecture looked like and, and how this whole thing worked. Okay. Um, but it, I would argue that you really can't do it without a, a unified namespace. It's not going to scale. Um, we also have other enterprise systems such as GIS um, that have not been mentioned yet. Is the UNS suitable to manage the data produced by such systems? The answer is absolutely. Even your fleet management software um, will be integrated in UNS. And I'm going to show you, we do many integrations using ArcGIS to, into the unified namespace. I'm going to show you an example that we did. It was two examples back to back that we did um, where we take, we're, this, is, this is one of the reasons we created the unified namespace. So for those of you that don't know what ArcGIS is, it's a, it's a, it's a geographical information services platform developed by Esri. Okay. And actually we used to have an office in the same building with Esri, but we used to have a GIS developer on our team. And, you know, she was a, a, a an ArcGIS guru and like knew the API really, really well. But here, here was the use case where we really started getting steered towards man, we have to do the unified namespace. We know that it's going to be right, but we have to use it. And here was the use case. I've got ArcGIS, which is basically geographical information services for, let me go to this, you know, ArcGIS, uh, hold on a second. All right, ArcGIS creates maps that look something like this. Okay, this is an ArcGIS map. This is an ArcGIS map. This is an ArcGIS map, all right? In a nutshell, ArcGIS allows you to create many layers of data that you can stack on top of the same map image, all right? And it's super fast and you know, you can, there's a tool called ArcMap um, and uh, where you can create um, web applications for that use the layers, that, the maps that are developed inside of ArcGIS. So. Um, to answer your question, the, the original use case was, oh man, we've got all these awesome maps inside of ArcGIS. And what I really want to do is I want to take the maps that are already there. I want to put them on a screen. And then I want you guys to take process. I want you to use process data. And I want you to overlay alarm state over top of our maps. So I want to be able to look at a map that's in ArcGIS. And I want to, and I want to create quadrants. So what you're seeing here, uh, this is a little blurry when I stretch it out, but this is uh, an example in West Texas. All right. You're looking at an ArcGIS map that is inside of a unified SCADA system that's built on top of a unified namespace. Okay. So what I've got here, these little boxes that you see here are that's like the Midland Odessa area. This is Midland Odessa. And those are assets. Those are, uh, they're not assets. They are leases sitting on lease areas sitting on top of, um, the Midland Odessa area. This is the Permian asset. Okay. So the, the green, the green outline here is the Permian asset. And then what's underneath it are all the, the lease areas. They're not the routes. We can actually view it by route. If you want to as well, the lease operator can look and see all the areas he's responsible for. But what they wanted was they wanted to be able to go to a single ArcGIS map, the map that's in ArcGIS. And on top of the map, what they wanted to see was indications of the sites that were in alarm. Okay. So I want to see, I want to see just the ones that have high tank levels. Right. I just, I don't. And, and so what that looks like is, you know, in your SCADA system, this is what a tank battery looks like. 
in, in the system that we built. If I just went into the SCADA system and I just wanted to look at tank levels, I would have to go to each of the individual assets and look at the tank levels. What they wanted was like a level three screen where the operator could go to this screen and start out by looking at just the areas that have high tank levels. And then I, he, they wanted to be able to click on the map. And then from that map, from the alarm that they saw on the map, they wanted to be able to drill down to the tank battery. Now, people have been doing this for a long time. They haven't been combining it with ArcGIS, but they've been basically copying the ArcGIS map inside of the SCADA system, either taking a screenshot and then they would like, you know, create little alarms on there. It was all discrete development. It was all, if I wanted to do that, it was going to cost me a shit ton of money because I have to have an engineer sit there for weeks when you've got, you know, a gazillion assets. So here was the use case. What everything that you're looking at here is from this big project that, you know, we did in 2013. So here are some of the stats. This, this, this project covered five states, okay? It had uh, 14,000 sites. It had 40,000 devices, so PLCs. Uh, so uh, PLCs, mm. pump-off controllers, um, flow meters, um, and lack units, right? It's lack when... units of the sales. Oh. Oh, hold on a second. 40,000 devices. They had 2,000 users. Uh, we had 11 million tags. Okay, that is 11 million values that changed in the system, and we did two million. Um, we did two million alarms per day. Okay. Now there were so when we did this project, the goal was to create an enterprise class system. That is, if I added a new um, a new well. So one of the things is that in, in oil and gas, this is, you know, oil and gas funds most of this stuff because they have the money to do it. And then you take what you've developed in oil and gas and you make it work in utilities where they don't have the money, right? Or solar where they don't have the money or manu discrete manufacturing. That's exactly what we did. We proved out the unified namespace concept using oil and gas customers because, you know, when oil prices are high, they've got more money than, you know, they burn money. I mean, so we developed it doing using oil and gas, and then we took that and we started applying it into discrete manufacturing. And you know, over the last uh, six years, five or six years, it's been all basically discrete: food and beverage, you know, life sciences, et cetera, et cetera. So in this project, we had to cover five states, fourteen thousand sites, forty thousand devices, two thousand users, eleven million tags, two million alarms per day. So, and, and, and this is pretty much everything you needed to be able to see. Like, you and know, those there screens were... right there, I want to point out that nothing on that screen you see is actually statically bound. Nothing. It is fully dynamic. Yep. It's right. Through it's browsing dynamic. of the namespace and through, through looking at the database that backs that model. And once a, and once a device goes offline or once a site goes offline, or let's say, uh, you know, I add a new tank. So I add a new tank. The whole idea was I add a tank out in the field. It comes the whole idea was, right, we wanted that to push up to us rather than, okay, now I've got to go into my SCADA system and add a new tank on my screen. That's not how this works. Everything that you're seeing here, this screen is fully dynamic. Every so time what you it open does it, it, it gets rebuilt. 
it gets rebuilt the moment you open the window. That's right. And it gets built from the unified namespace. So what happens is this window looks at the unified namespace and sees the objects that are there, and then it, it rebuilds itself. For example, if I don't have an oil meter on this site, the oil meter doesn't show up on the window. All right. So if I just select, go to a different tank battery facility, what happens is this window looks to see what's there in the unified namespace, and then it regenerates itself. Okay. So if I add an oil meter, now the oil meter will show up the next time I refresh the screen. Right. That's the, that's how it scales. So when you're asking, you know, does this scale? When we did this project, this, you know, covering five states, so Oklahoma, New Mexico, Texas, Louisiana, um, and uh, Colorado, um, 14,000 sites, we, we didn't even go to any of these sites. We never, in, it, there were 19 developers that worked on this. We did the first phase in 18 months. The customer spent $1.6 million, including, you know, plus, including the licensing, which I think was like a half million dollars. So they spent $1.1 million on engineering for one whole year. We had 19 developers, you know, at any given time. It was, you know, most of the time we had three engineers, four engineers. The, the vast majority of our work was um, building the, uh, the backend. You know, we, this was the first time we were ever doing it. We did all of this using Ignition. Okay. And I'm going to show you guys the architecture here in a second. It should help with the unified namespace concept, right? Because he's talking about the utility, the utility question. Let me go back to his original question. Um, such as GIS that haven't been mentioned yet. Is UNI suitable? Yes, it is. One of the biggest challenges we face is aligning data from different systems that all references the same assets. So there's a couple of tricks to do that, right? And what he means here is, when I create a site inside of ArcGIS, the master data model inside of ArcGIS has an, a unique ID for that site. Let's say I'm looking at a, a tank battery and that tank battery has got a lease name and, and you know, it could be anything. It could, this could be a remote water wastewater facility. Uh, in Southern California, they're all over the place, right? So it, it could be you know, anything. It could be power plants. It could be uh, you know, uh, wind or solar energy. Um, Inside of ArcGIS, there is a unique asset ID for that site, but only ArcGIS uses that ID. Inside of my ERP system, I have a different um, ID for that asset. I've got a name of the asset, and then I've got a unique identifier. And then in the SCADA system, I will have a unique ID for that asset as well. If you're using Ignition, it's going to be the tag path, you know, the path up to the folder that contains that asset. If you let's say I want to combine that data and I want to do it the old way. I want to get I want to get the map of that site. I want to get the profitability of the site or the cost. And then I, I want to get all the process data. The first thing I got to do is create discrete connections between the SCADA system, ArcGIS, the SCADA system, ERP. Then what I've got to do is create a lookup table and then put a table inside the SCADA system that has SCADA system ID, and then the next column is ArcGIS ID, and then the next column is the ERP ID, right? And then I got to connect those. And then we're at all the places that I want to share that data. I have to run a query to get the ID so that I can go get the stuff from ArcGIS that I want through the API, and then same thing through ERP. Eventually, you run out of money. Okay, that's what happens. Or they make a change, and then you, and you can't manage the change. This is why we use the unified namespace. This is why we use report by exception. That's why we use edge-driven. What we do is we take ArcGIS. What Generally, what we do is we hit the ArcGIS API, the RESTful API. 
and we go query that that API from our IIoT platform. The IIoT platform, whether it's Ignition, Factory Studio, WinCCOA, you know, it, the list is ad nauseum. But I, I hit that API, hit the RESTful API, and then what I do is I convert it into my ISA 95 structure, and I publish it to. So what will end up happening is the ArcGIS data gets published right next to the SCADA data, which gets published right next to the ERP data. We just tell the ERP where to put it. We tell ArcGIS where to put it and the SCADA system where to put it. And they're all right next to each other. That's the approach we take, okay? One of the biggest challenges we face is aligning data from different systems that reference the same assets. And what I just laid out, what your primary challenge is, is that is you've got to have lookup tables to join all those asset IDs together. Historically, these systems have been completely separate, but now we want to bring all the data together. Knowing what asset a system is referencing is very difficult. Does the implementation of the UNS help solve this challenge? Absolutely. In fact, I <laughs> the whole point is, is that this was the first use case we proved it out on, that exactly what you're describing here. Um, from what I understand, the UNS and IOT can work in these scenarios, but I'd like to confirm my thinking is correct. I'm arguing that you can't do what you're trying to do, especially in large organizations without taking the approach, the UNS approach. Um, you know, it, you know, you can do anything with enough time and enough money. What I argue is that your, what you want to do will, will change long before you ever finish it. If you try to do it discreetly with point to point connections. Um, are there any good case studies or examples that demonstrate these concepts in a utility environment? I'd like to know what utility you're talking about first, and then I can answer that question. Um, all right, question from Mario. Once you use Sparkplug B, should all information related to an asset be configured only on the source? For example, machine ideal speed, although it's static, should it be in the asset information together with other information to make sure the sender is a single source of truth for this asset data? All right. Most people want to go in this direction. And basically what he's saying is, is once you've got the edge device connected to the unified namespace, right? How much should you put in, the, in that device? Okay, now that device could be a PLC, it could be a gateway, it could be an edge SCADA system, whatever. But he's saying how much of the contextual information should you be putting in the, in there, you know, uh, in the, on the edge? So that would be like the machine ID, that would be, uh, you know, ideal rate, that would be, um, uh, it would be like contextual information that may normally be stored in the MES system or normally stored in the ERP. So the answer to your question, Mario, is in general, in general, the stuff that we put on the edge to publish over Sparkplug B is unique to what is on the edge, all right? So when you ask about um, uh, machine ideal speed, if the machine ideal speed came from the OEM, that is the OEM said, here is your theoretical cycle time, right? Or this is your minimum ideal cycle time. This is your maximum ideal cycle time. If the OEM is the one that delivered that information to you, then I would keep it on the edge because that's unique to the machine itself, that note. But let's say that that, that, that ideal or that cycle time, that ideal cycle time is something that the process engineer is constantly tuning, or it's something that changes as a function of the product that's running on that machine. Well, that isn't, that isn't an, an, a piece of data from the edge. That is a, you know, that's an either an MES function, 
That's an ERP function. That may be a function from your quality system. And I would argue it needs to live in that node but and be published from that node into the unified namespace, not through the device. The, again, this is where the engineer's expertise comes in. We say this all the time. There isn't one solution for every problem. The solution you develop is going to be a function of the problem you're trying to solve. What we argue is start with building a technology stack, minimum technical requirements for all the solutions you use, and then run your knowledge, what you know, your expertise through that. There are going to be scenarios where you put ideal speed in the machine. Uh, I have never done it. I, I, I don't know if Ray is on the call. I'd like to ask if, you know, Ray's doing a big project right now, one of our guys. I don't know if he's putting ideal speed um, on the edge. I've never put that on the edge. It's always a function of the um, either the CMMS or the ERP namespace in, in the unified namespace. All right, uh, Denton, in your experience, how well does the ISA 95 maintenance model, uh, so request, work order, response objects, benefit the OEE calculation for the equipment set? What application are you using to calculate OEE value um, or rather, where are you calculating it? Okay, um, so let me, the ISA 95 maintenance model uh, is not used uh, in our experience to calculate OEE in any way, shape or form. What it is used is to, uh, to calculate mean time to repair and mean time between failure. We'll end up with two numbers. We'll have mean time to repair, which is a num. So for those of you who don't know those numbers, so mean time between failure is a calculation generally in minutes that or minutes or, or seconds that tells you what is the average amount of time that this machine runs before it has a downtime event. So, and it's normally calculated like, by production run, and then it's calculated by the shift, and then it's calculated by the week, you know, and then the month, and then the year, and then you can group it in the area. But basically, it's how long how long does the machine continuously run between failures? That's really what it means, okay? And then mean time to repair is once it has a failure, once it's in a downtime reason, how long does it normally stay there? So how, when I have a, a failure, how long is it normally in failure? We normally calculate that twice, both of those numbers, mean time between failure, mean time to repair. The first time we calculate it is in the OEE engine, which almost always runs at the plant level. It lives in the, in our case, it always lives in the IIoT platform. Um, that calculation is being done in the IIoT platform or as a stored procedure running in the database behind it. Um, there, we have a couple of different examples. Sometimes we run it in Python, sometimes, you know, we have a couple of different engines we use. If you use like Cepasoft's MES modules, it's going to be calculated inside of Cepasoft's modules. Um, if you're going to use Traxxas, Traxxas is the one that's going to do the calculation. Um, but to, we will calculate mean time to repair and mean time between failure uh, in the OEE engine only using data from the machines. So that is, um, I, I have a downtime event, you know, I, I'm, my machine is stopped. And, and then my machine started, the, those events that come just from the machine. We also calculate it in the CMMS using the rising. So then there's another set of data. And that is when I have a downtime event, what's the average amount of time between the machine breaking and the operator opening a work order to have it repaired, which is what he's talking about in the ISA 95 model. We generally do this within 4 EAM. So that's the most common one is in 4 EAM. 
where we will will have the operator open the the breakdown work order from the IIoT um, platform, so from the SCADA interface. So I have a downtime event or an MES interface. The downtime event, the operator decides whether it's something he can fix. I can't fix it. Create work order from the single pane of glass. And now what we've done is we've captured the time between the downtime event and when the operator opened the work order. We also start a timer that creates the work order in the CMMS. And now we create a timer where how long will it take the maintenance person to get the work order and show up at the machine? So then you got that rising event. And now he, he checks in when he gets to the machine and we've captured that piece of data. And then now we're in repair. And then as he's repairing, when the repair is complete, he closes out the work order all from the same single pane of glass. And we've captured those four time events. And now we do a second calculation of mean time between uh, failure and mean time to repair that is separate from the OEE calculation. So to answer your question, um, how well does the ISA 95 maintenance model benefit the OEE calculation? It really doesn't benefit the OEE calculation itself. OEE, the only thing you need to calculate OEE, what are the raw events you need? You need an in-feed count. That is what raw materials went in. Most of the time you abstract that data. Normally that is what, you know, how much waste that I produce and how many finished goods that I produce, add those two together. And that gives me my in-feed count. You need your waste count, how much waste you produced, and then how many good parts you produced. You need those three counts. And then you need state. What is the state the machine is in right now? So that is, is it running? Is it in a running event? Is it in a downtime event? Or is it in a scheduled downtime event? And a planned downtime event, they call it in the OEE calculation. If you have, if you have those seven pieces of data, then you have everything you need to calculate OE. That's all you need. You don't need anything um, from like maintenance. You, what you need is the information from the machine itself. Once you have those things, you can do all your OE calculations. So one of the things I want to do, because I don't think we've ever really done this. I want to talk about, I've said this many times, but I want to go over. Oh, I, a quick, I, I think what oh, Denton me, is. Yeah, let me, let me finish this and then okay. we'll go back to it. Okay. okay. So what is OEE used for? Okay, so the, I'm, I'm showing you the actual workflow and ignore the exact numbers, but let's say I'm, a, I'm the chief executive officer of a company and I want to know what my capacity is, okay? So let's say I've got 100 plants and with my 100 plants, I can produce, you know, I can produce uh, one or I have three plants and I can produce 1 million units per day between my three plants combined. What I want to know is how many units am I producing? All right. Or how many, if, if I know that that's my capacity, what most people will do is they will, they'll try to calculate a production efficiency number. And that production efficiency is based, let's say I produced on any given day, I produced, uh, I produced 750,000. Their production efficiency number would be 75%. Okay. Now, is that similar That's to a, TEEP? Uh, no, TEEP is based on a 24-hour, seven-day schedule. So the, this capacity number this capacity number is based on my operating hours. Got it. TEEP, TEEP is based on not just operating hours, but the hours I have available in a week. So you have to use the TEEP number to determine, well, what if I went to 24 hours a day, seven days right. a week, right? Okay. That's your TEEP number. I, I thought you posited this scenario as if 1 million was running 24 hours. 
which would then in case be teed. Correct. That would be teed. Right. So, um, so they normally do this type of thing that the truth is, is this really isn't helpful because it doesn't get to root cause. So this is why we use OEE. So what we do is we show the OE, we show the OEE number at each layer of the ISA 95 stack. Now you'll notice I left out the cell and I just did it just to make the screen not look busy, but you got enterprise site area line cell. So the CEO looks at this, the CEO looks at this enterprise or the chief operating officer and he sees, holy shit, our overall equipment effectiveness is 50%. Now these numbers aren't exact calculations. Just if it's not a 100, know that it's, it's less than 100. I'm just using 50 in every place. So the next thing that he'll do is he'll look at our, all of the plants that we have. And he sees that we have two of them operating at 100% OEE, which by the way, never happens. And one that's operating at 50. That'll give me my 50%. Okay. So what, the, what he does then, what he does is he then calls the plant manager and the plant manager looks at his OEE, which is 50%. And he goes down and he looks at his areas. Okay. And he says, I've got two areas that are operating at hundred percent and one that's operating at 50%. So then he calls that supervisor and he says, supervisor, you got an air, your area is operating at 50%. So that supervisor goes and he looks at the four machines he's got in his area. He's got three operating at hundred percent. He's got one operating at 50. And then what he does is he decides who he's going to yell at. So he looks and he sees that his availability number is 50%. His quality number is 100% and his performance number is 100%. Okay. So what he does is he calls his maintenance manager. And he tells the maintenance manager, hey, on this machine, we've got 50% availability. What the fuck's wrong? And the maintenance manager goes into the MES system and he looks at all the individual events and he says, oh, we had 128 minutes of slow valve open, okay? So that is a flow control valve is supposed to open in one second, and we got a timer running in there, and we see that it's taking four or five seconds to open every time it opens. That means we got some issue with the valve. Let's go take a look. That is a highly simplistic view of what OEE does. But here's the point. These numbers, right? You have a OEE calculation at this level. You got an OEE calculation at this level. You got one here and you got your AQP down here. You got a OEE calculation here. What you want to do is you, that, that number, the OEE calculation, the overall equipment effectiveness number, oftentimes in like machine learning and data analytics is used as a trigger. If OEE is greater than what our target is, then let's not do any analysis. Let's own, let's, let's focus on the things where we're under our targets. Okay. By the way, what I'm showing here is not, you would never see a, if you see hundred percent OEE, there's something wrong. I've never seen it. If you have 85% OEE, you're kicking ass and taking names. That's like a world-class number. Okay. Most of the time when we deploy an MES system, you're operating at 20, 30% OEE nearly all the time. I've ne I think the highest number we've ever seen is like in the upper forties. 47, 48%. And then we get you into the 70s and 80s. That's a huge gain in capacity. That right there is your workflow for MES and OE right there. Uh, what was what was it Denton said there? Oh, what I'm thinking he, so what Denton is saying or what you're saying, <clears throat> so the mean time between failure and the mean time between response, mean time for response, to repair. To repair. mean time to repair. 
tracking those numbers and then improving them could reduce downtime. So it could indirectly improve OEE, I think is what Dan yeah, is saying. So, so, uh, so, you know, mean time between failure and mean time to repair is a, totally a function of how quickly we fix things. Now, mean time to repair, there are, there, you're going to have downtime events where there's no human intervention, hmm. right? I may have a downtime event where there's no human intervention. And so there's nothing I can do with the mean time to repair, right? I, I mean, normally you're focusing on with mean time to repair, how quickly can we get our equipment back up and running? And mean time between failure is how reliable is the equipment when it is running? That is mean time between mm. failure is the number in minutes between failures. Got it. Now, in, 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 in mean time between failure and mean time to repair really help you drill down on this analysis. And here, here's why OEE is important. Hold on. I have never, we have never done an MES system. We have never deployed OEE. And I, and I challenge anybody else here who does the same thing we do. Have you ever done an, an OEE implementation or MES implementation when the customer wasn't shocked at one of the numbers you showed them or where the client was not shocked by what the data and information revealed to them? I mean, I've never, every time I've ever done one, they've been blown away. Uh, wait, hold on a second. Um, love the supervisor's blunt style of language. Perfect. Uh, many were scared. Yeah, right there. Dowdell said many were scared. He's right. One of the first things that people say when you show them the real numbers, you're tracking actual digital events. You're not having human beings fill out spreadsheets and stuff because they're just, they're pencil whipping it. They're, 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 we call it massaging the data. If you have operations manually tracking these, these calculations that are these events so that you can do your calculation, rest assured they are massaging those numbers and you want to, you want to know the number, you want to know the number one way they massage it. What they'll do is they'll increase the amount of planned downtime. So they'll like throw a, a safety meeting in there, which they don't get dinged for. And so that reduces the total number of available minutes to run. Right. And, and which artificially increases the performance number. The part of the, when you collect the information digitally, when you correct the information digitally, they cannot massage the data. And they're always shocked. They are always, always shocked. And the number one thing you will hear is that can't be right. <laughs> Your calculation can't be right. You have to be prepared to prove it. And when you collect the data from the machine, look, the machine was off here. It came back on here. A person didn't tell us that. We watched it, you know. Now let's do the, love the supervisor's blunt style. Uh, uh, Chris, uh, okay. Uh, hey, Chris. Yeah, thank you for chiming in. Uh, he's Chris Gill said Dan 24 B is probably referring to a utility wa water utility. We are actually doing a case study right now. We're doing two case studies for 2021 from projects that we've done over the last two years. One is a food and beverage case study, which is a full digital transformation. If you guys are in mentorship and, or digital mastermind, you have already seen the project because I we've demoed it for you, but we're doing a, a case study that shows everything in detail. The other one that we're doing is uh, a wastewater, uh, it's a wastewater utility. So it is a mobile wastewater utility. We did shoot a video on this, which was the, 
Um, what was the name of the video, Zach? That was the, uh, the Lightboard video, and it was the we, Industry 3.0 to Industry 4.0 example, side by side. Yeah, we example. were comparing like a Industry 3.0 hybrid oil and gas project we had to do with a pure Industry 4.0 project. The case study we are doing is the is the Industry 4.0 example, and that is a wastewater utility using unified namespace. In fact, ArcGIS uh, Arc is in there. Their fleet management software is in the unified namespace. So we're doing those case studies. We uh, we were in our staff meeting this week. We will go over, hey, when are we going to start the case study? So I expect the case studies to be completed sometimes in the second quarter. Um, uh, how about repair parts availability? Will this affect OEE? Okay, so this is a good question. This is a really good question. So that's from uh, uh, DW Stand One Texas. Uh, who, which guy is that? That's Dwayne. Dwayne, right? So uh, thanks, Dwayne. Um, I cannot remember everybody's handles. <laughs> um, all right, repair parts availability. How does this affect OEE? All right, so it depends. The answer to that question is that depends on who you ask. All right, so the the actual question he's asking is. Uh, let me, uh, you know, how does, uh, how does repair parts availability? So for example, the machine breaks down the, the machine breaks down and I don't have parts to repair it. Um, how does this affect OEE? Here's how it's supposed to affect OEE, but this is not the way they generally do it. It is supposed to ding the availability of the machine. Okay. So that means that machine should just stay in downtime and you should and and you should end up with like an OEE number of like let's say it takes 3 weeks for the part to come in it's it's OEE number should be like 0. 0.000001 okay and and if you looked at the availability number it should be like 0. 0.000001 that's the way it's supposed to go okay well what ends up happening there's there becomes a holy war in the organization what's important is it drives a conversation the maintenance manager who's being held accountable for the availability number, he that maintenance manager is going to start having a conversation with procurement. He's going to start looking at the CMMS. What are what are our replenishment numbers? Um, and you know there will be questions that come up as to uh, you know why was that part not available? Okay, the point is is that that number is it should negatively impact the availability number. But in most cases, what they end up doing is they remove that machine from the schedule. Yeah, so that why would no, they do that though? So that Just nobody gets dinged. It indicates there's a problem. Yeah, it, 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 what it, it, they're massaging it. In most cases, they'll remove that machine from the, from the schedule so that nobody gets dinged for it. Okay, nobody gets dinged for it. And the only place that it would show up is on the TEEP number. So if you're, if you're comparing TEEP and OEE, you would see it would get baked into the TEEP number because that asset you can't get rid of in the TEEP number. Now, but now you're hurting your, your scheduling less time to produce. Correct. You're scheduling less, which dings, which means your, your OEE mm -hmm. number stays high, but the TEEP number comes down. Right. I mean, you want to know these numbers because at the end of the day, you're not making as much money. Uh, Dwayne said, agreed accuracy to the real world is high. That's how I know Walker knows this stuff. Oh, I'm <laughs> using the examples of, uh, um, I'm using the examples that everybody can relate to. <laughs> I, I want to use, um, um, I was going to use an example here. Hold on a second. Uh, it, it'll come up. Let me go over to YouTube real quick. I, I got to finish a couple of questions on YouTube. 
Uh, all right. So uh, JRS 89 said, do you have a link to this intrinsic versus extrinsic white paper? Uh, no, but we'll add one. Please put that to our action items. Um, I feel like this could be applied to the, so for those of you, if you didn't watch the intrinsic versus extrinsic motivated engineers, I'm using, I'm using extrinsic and intrinsic motivation as an, as a, um, as an, as being analogous to industry 4.0 versus industry 3.0 companies, right? You basically being an intrinsically motivated organization is one that innovates even when people are sleeping. Why? Because you've automated the process of innovation and you've done that leveraging IIoT, industry 4.0 and digital transformation. Examples of companies like this are, Tesla is an example of companies like this, okay? Um, uh, Mario, that would be done in the ERP and used in planning. All right, well, Mario said, should lines have a weight of importance when calculating the area OEE? If line A creates a product that is 10 times more valuable than line B, should their OEE have similar importance in the area? Um, so Dowdell is exactly right. And so Dowdell says that would be done in the ERP and used in planning. He's correct. It's done on the planning side. However, um, so Mario, to answer your question, the at the operations level, no, there shouldn't be a weight. When I'm looking at the area OEE number, what I really care about is we don't, we don't apply a weight to more valuable equipment when we're calculating OEE, but we do when we are planning to produce. When we are scheduling, we do. Um, hey, uh, Dwayne, the, the, water, the wastewater project, it, we just started doing the case study. So um, we have a meeting with, I have a meeting with Matt, the engineer who did it, who's doing the um, finishing the case study. We'll go over it. Um, I don't expect the final case study to be done until uh, probably right at the beginning of the second quarter. So maybe April we'll have it for everybody because um, we're doing two of them at the same time. But yes, Dowdell is exactly right. It's done at the planning level. You basically plan your most valuable equipment first. Um, that's generally the approach you do. Um, I want to finish JRS's question. They're overly focused on the day-to-day -day operations at the expect of innovate and expense of innovation. Some people feel compelled, rewarded, and motivated to put out fires. While they're not lazy, they're not being as productive as they could. While some organizations find time to pivot to innovation, they struggle to sustain and maintain it. These are the plateaus that create gaps between competing firms. Exactly. One, here's one of the biggest things that you will notice. Um, if you're doing digital transformation or you're meeting with lots of different companies, I meet with, I think last year alone, I met with over a hundred different companies. Um, you know, most of them, like 70% of them were, you know, billion dollar companies and above. And one of the first things you notice is that the most innovative companies in the world all have one thing in common. And that is super strong leadership. And because they have super strong leadership, everyone in the organization knows what their digital strategy is. If you ask them, and I ask this question all the time, what is your digital strategy? And if you hear crickets, it means one of two things. Either they don't have a digital strategy yet, or they have poor leadership. And that's a question you need to know. You need to know, does this company have poor leadership? I cannot tell you how many boards I've got gone in front of and walked out and told my team, 
holy shit. There's nobody on that board who has any idea what they're doing when it comes to digital fans. I mean, no idea. They have no idea how it's going to benefit their organization. They have no idea. Like they're just, they read some McKinsey white paper. They don't know what it means that, you know, and, and they don't have any idea at all. And that, that is the predominant state of manufacturing um, in the U S uh, Phil Scruggs, good discussion on motivations. Didn't Elon Musk in interviews from 2018 mention that he had too many robots? Don't yes. He had too many robots replacing human beings, but they're don't conflate robots with automation. Um, robots are a subset of automation. So if, if, if ro many robots are not the answer, that doesn't mean that automation is not the answer. Um, building things that people should be involved with. Correct. There seems to be a fine balance between deciding when to implement the latest innovations over traditional methodology. Here's the most important thing in automation. Okay. Um, or most important thing in manufacturing to continuously improve your process. Your engineers need to be very, need to be very close to that process. And they have, they need to have a complete understanding of how that process operates both on a theoretical and practical level. Digital transformation is what collects all of the practical data that they need to analyze. Then you need to have your process engineers and your machine, your machine builders close to the process to improve. There is a great article in Forbes from like six years ago um, related to General Electric and how General Electric designed like, you know, 15 years ago, they designed, I think it was a washing machine or it could have been a dishwasher, but they designed a washing water machine. Heater, water heater. We actually it was a water this. heater. Right. And we, we did a video on it and they, they designed it in the United States, like in Indiana, they designed it, they built the machines, all that stuff. They shipped it to China. And for 15 years, they manufactured that, um, that line, they wanted to make some changes. So they, they brought the line back to Indiana and they wanted to get, I think it was like an $1,800 water heater. And they, they wanted to make the machine builds less expensive or whatever. And they wanted to change a couple of the parts. And what they realized was they actually got the cost of that water heater down to like 700 bucks or something. And it was simply because the engineers who worked on the production lines had not had a chance in, you know, they were only going to China twice a year. And most of the time they were in a hurry and jet lagged. And so they weren't ever doing deep dives on the equipment. And just by being close to the equipment, they were able to improve the process to the point where they got the cost of the water, their costs down by 50%, right. which dropped the cost to the consumer down. And so there was this, this whole movement. Oh, wait, let's bring everything back stateside and let's have our engineers improve all the processes. Where digital transformation comes in is this whole idea that we, we're going to want to automate that innovation. So we want to be collecting that. We don't want to have to make a, a discrete decision to innovate. We want to be innovating even when we're sleeping. And then we decide whether we want to execute on, on that innovation, right? That's, that's a, the, you know, the component of the Holy Grail. Um, all right. Uh, JRS said, yes, some of the assembly was overly automated. On one hand, it was not economical. It actually impeded productivity, hurt product quality, increased manufacturing costs. On the other hand, there's something to be said for pushing the envelope and proving where the limits are. By knowing the limits and understanding why it makes it easier to innovate down the row, I'm sure Tesla, Fanuc, and their integrators have tons of lessons learned. Yes, when I talk about um, when I talk about um, Tesla, I'm speaking firsthand knowledge. Now we were just talking about the engineer I worked on who did the who I worked with on the Tesla project. Who did he was doing all the PLC code under the hood, and I was doing all the front end piece and the the architecture. You know, yes, Tesla tried to over automate. 
the things that we talk about automating are, you know, think of all the, the, like the overly manual processes where people are exposed to injury, repeat, uh, repeat injuries. So, uh, where they're doing a task over and over and over and over again, those are the types of things you automate out. And then you take that position and you, and you, that spot and it, you move them to another spot where it's not automated yet. And, and through attrition, that person leaves and you, the way you gain is you take the, the money you're saving from a couple of positions you've automated. And now what you're doing is you're putting, um, you know, uh, data scientists on your team, operations analysts, that kind of stuff at an upper or higher level. If you look at the most advanced facilities, like the dark facilities that we talk about, instead of having three operators on every production line, what you've got is one operator running three lines from a, from a, like a control room at like at a desk and the production environment's dark. And the only time they turn the lights on is when they're going out to do continuous improvement or they're going to fix something. But that team, that, that group of three production lines has, you know, an operator, it may have two operators, may have a material handler. And then you've got a process engineer who's dedicated to just those three lines. You got a continuous improvement engineer, a quality engineer. What you end up seeing is, you're taking this team of higher paid people, higher paid professionals and spreading them out across lines, but through automation. Everyone who says that automation takes away jobs is correct in a sense. That is it, we automate out all the right jobs, the stuff that's gonna get people hurt, the stuff that has really high turnover, the stuff where all I'm really doing is having asking someone to use their muscles over and over and over and over again. But what it does, it creates net jobs. And I mean, we've, we've proven this out over and over and over and over again. Automation and digital transformation has a net gain in jobs, not a net loss. I mean, it's just anyone who's saying otherwise just is not looking at the data. I mean, all you got to do is go to the Bureau of Labor Statistics to see. Um, all right. Is ThingWorks a unified sp namespace platform? No, but it connects to it can connect to a unified namespace. Um, can you discuss where Kafka fits into IoT? I understand the UNS can be fed into Kafka, but I see some overlap lapping functionality. Um, yeah, so here's the way we use Kafka generally. Kafka generally has a copy of the unified namespace sitting at it. One of the things that's really important to understand is the UNS doesn't live in one place. It's omnipresent. Okay, you can create many copies of the UNS and create like this whole infrastructure. And I mean, instances, I can have a broker running on my laptop that is an exact copy of the, the master broker, okay? I can create like this, this tiered hierarchy of, of my unified namespace, right? Where I've got dis a distributed unified namespace in one business unit. And everybody who's under the business unit is just making copies of the unified namespace from just the business unit all over the business unit, on my laptop, on that server. And, they, and basically the, through this, this architecture, the distributed architecture, Copies of the broker are everywhere. The, it's the same thing with Kafka. We create a copy of the UNS at Kafka, and and what happens is Kafka will report its, it you know if I'm doing analysis for example in Kafka, it's reporting it's reporting that data into uh, into the unified namespace. Um, most of the time, what we're doing with Kafka is we are taking time series events through the unified namespace and dumping them into Kafka and, and allowing people to do analysis through that interface. Okay. Um, Jeremy McCabe. I don't have any degrees. 
But when I became a supervisor in automotive production, I did just what you said. This is what do I have to study to be a system integrator? Uh, Jeremy, thanks for pointing it out. Um, we do not, um, I don't care about degrees. Um, in fact, I don't know if I, I've ever told the team, you guys this before, but I, I don't read resumes when I interview people. And I don't look, I don't look at your resume until after we've decided to hire you. So, and I encourage my, our team to not look at your resume until we've made the decision whether we want you on the team. Um, your degree doesn't mean anything to me. I could give a shit. All the best engineers I've ever had, I've ever worked with, uh, don't have degrees in engineering. Um, the best software developers, I mean, hell, the, the greatest software developer I've ever worked, in, worked with has a degree in medieval literature. Okay, so you know, the, the degree is important. I'm not telling you don't get an education. It's important. I make my, I'm making my kids all get college degrees, but it's a hoop you jump through. What, what the degree tells me is that you can start, you can start something and you can finish something. That's what the degree tells me. If, if you're what I, the people I really like are the people who went to like six different universities, changed their major five times and took them 12 years to get a two-year degree. I like those people. You know why? Because they're agile. They're agile by default. <laughs> they, they, they ran into problems. They figured out a way to solve it. They, they learned something about themselves and pivoted, learned something about themselves and pivoted, learned something about themselves and pivoted. I like those people the most, to be honest with you. Now, granted, I took my education very seriously. And, you know, I have multiple degrees with an advanced degree. And, and you know, I went back and got a degree in engineering. I did those things because if I was going to be a, like, a, if I wanted to take it seriously, the degree was important, but uh, he thought of the things they could use and he made it himself started, you know, he, he's a tinkerer. That's what this guy is. What I refer to this Jeremy McCabe is a guy who snatches victory from the jaws of defeat. Uh, Sam Kirby on the OEE series coming up, maybe touch upon, is it OEE that the end user really wants, or is it a machine production utilization display? which can be scaled into true OEE over time after adding the infrastructure and architecture to do so, giving multiple cost options and tangible benefits off the bat regards Sam. Um, the answer is, yeah, they, they, what they, they care about machine and production utilization at certain layers. The reason we talk about OEE, here's the most important thing about OEE. If done correctly, and Dowdell and those guys will back me up here, if, if OEE is done correctly, what I can do is I can take processes that are totally unlike and I can compare them to one another. I can take a batch process and I can take a linear subassembly process and I can compare them to one another. If I know how much it costs to operate that one and how much it costs to operate this one, I take that OEE number. The OEE number is the one number that allows me to compare them apples to apples if you execute the collection of the data correctly, right? You're using the correct in-feed count and you're capturing state correctly and that kind of stuff. Um, all right, cool. Uh, any other questions? I'm, I'm 16 minutes over. Uh, yes, hold on a second. Dowdell, does EMQ create self-replicating broker? My objective is to create copies without creating another connection from the edge or some other node? The answer is self-replicating. That's a good question. I didn't look to see. So EMQ is the broker that we use. It's an enterprise class broker. Um, we use HiveMQ as well, but we like EMQ because it, the pricing is a lot clearer. Um, 
I don't know if it's self-replicating. The way that we do the replication is we create a new broker instance and we subscribe to the full namespace. That's how we do it. And so we, we start with an original, but with the enterprise, what we end up having is redundancy built in. Um, Zach Wooten, SC, South Carolina, I'm assuming. Elon's 2018 comment. Automation is like cooking. One plate at a time with a few pans. Trying to cook tomorrow night's service today in one batch equals poor quality. Uh, Elon meant too much at the wrong time. Correct. Spot on. One of the biggest things that you noticed in what the that Tesla went through in the beginning was they tried to use the 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 typical um, automotive model using tier you know tier three tier two tier one suppliers and they learned a bunch of things. What what he originally thought was we're going to use the existing model and we're just going to become the most automated manufacturer on the planet and. And the way that we're going to change is we're not going to update our models every year. We're going to update the software. That was like his original vision. What he learned, what he did was he created in a completely different supply chain for automotive because he realized, wait a minute, these automotive suppliers create junk. I mean, I, I have some great stories about like projects we've done for tier one suppliers, Dow Dell, even in Mexico, actually, where you know, you know, we were working on a project where they were creating a wiring harness for a, for a transmission that was a shared venture between two of the big three. And, uh, and, and all the data collection. So the, the, you know, the two companies want, you know, they require that you calculate OEE and, you know, they'll write it into the spec, right? Everything was pencil whipped. I mean, it was crazy. Like how, how poor of a job they were doing making this wiring harness for the, uh, this transmission. It was terrible. I mean, terrible. And we would comment, the engineers would comment to one another, oh my God, I'm never going to buy this, that vehicle ever. <laughs> you know, like it's junk. Um, all right, cool. Uh, I a, any, I have a question. Yeah. Anything else I need to cover? You want to stop sharing so we can end it out here? Yeah, I would. Well, let me, let me go back to my notes. If there's any more questions. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Let me make sure I, I covered, I uh, did white. Oh, actually, you know what? Let's go through these screens. I didn't go through all these. Um, so this was that huge project that we did. So this is all the ArcGIS interface. Everything that you're looking at here is inside of Ignition. So these are all screens in Ignition. This is uh, the, these are some pond screens. So the, this is where they uh, the ponds where they did the the. Um, um, this is the fracking yeah. water fracking water distribution. So what they would do is they, they would, would pull use the a fracking of, water from these ponds. Yeah. So they were a vertically integrated oil and gas company, which meant that not only did they do the production and the drilling, but they also transmitted the water for the drilling, which was kind of crazy. And that's what that screen was showing. Oh, I wanted to show the architecture. Damn it. I didn't do that. Hold on. So that, sorry guys. I want to show you the architecture. So we had five assets co covering five. We had five assets covering um, five States. Okay. So basically the way that this worked was for each asset that is uh, asset is uh, like a, a business unit that produces oil and gas, but mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what your, we had five of them. I'm just going to use two uh, for my illustration. Here's, here's how it worked. Um, all of the sites were remote, like over radio networks. So I may have had um, at, you know, asset one, which would have been in West Texas and asset two was in South Texas. Okay. 
asset one may have had, let's say 5,000 sites. It was, it was the biggest one that they had. And then they had another one that had 1,000 sites. And that site, the sites could have been um, uh, oil well, it could have been a tank battery, a saltwater disposal, could have been a lack unit, um, could have been a, a couple of things, right? And they all communicated back to the asset over radio networks or a combination of cellular or free wave, um, that kind of thing. So what we did was we created a unified namespace uh, on the edge, okay, for each asset. So we created a unified namespace on the edge for each asset. And this unified namespace only contained the sites and it contained uh, process data and sales data, okay? So that's all you had on the, on the edge. And that process data could include like alarms. Then what we did was we had a single pane of glass for the entire business, okay? This is why they had to create the gateway area network. They didn't even call it back then, the gateway area network and ignition. They called it uh, federated tag provider is the way it was originally. It was designed for this project. It was developed during the project. I remember Colby did it like over a weekend or something. But they then what we have is the unified namespace but it wasn't okay, using you, MQTT. I think it was using WebSockets. WebSockets, right. It was using WebSockets. Yep. So what we did here is we, we created remote tag providers. So before we used MQTT here, uh, we created remote tag providers um, inside of the... So you had Ignition running on the edge and you had Ignition here. Everybody interfaced with Ignition here. The only thing that happened out on the edge was all the assets, collecting everything. Okay. Uh, we had kept server and ignition running on the edge. And then you had ignition running up here. We created remote tag providers that pulled all of the names, the unified namespace from this asset up into the central unified namespace. And then we added things like uh, um, spot fire analysis. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think. Yeah, Xbox. We wrote a tag provider for Xbox where we connected to Xbox and combined everything together for these assets. Uh, we did, um, uh, we did accounting. I can't remember which accounting software they used, uh, ArcGIS. We had integrated over a hundred different softwares that each one essentially would have in theory had to write a edge gateway to plug into the UNS. Correct. And then, and so then all of the users, all of the users interacted with this central system right here. They all interacted with this central system. But what we did was we did load balancing by creating a, um, a unified namespace for each asset. Now, this, if we were to, this was 2013. If, 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 we, if we were to do this today, we would be using MQTT to do it. MQT, I didn't even meet Arlene Nipper until a year after this project was done. And we were like, and we made this, we made this work. This is the one that we did our, got our, I think that was my second firebrand work. I think I got one the year before and then that, that year. Um, but yeah, the, um, th that was the architecture. So I, I wanted to make sure I pointed out. And, it, and so then this central unit talked to everything. I mean, this, this, this is the enterprise gateway that was based in Irving, Texas. And it talked to, talked to everything else. The only thing that the, this, this asset server was like, you know, in Midland asset one, 
was living in Midland and there was a failover in like Picos, Texas or something. And then, you know, the, the one that was in Colorado was in like in Colorado Springs and they had a failover in Denver or that kind of thing. So this is yes. actually where high bite would have been useful because oh, high there are bite, so we, many... could have, we could have done the modeling, which all these assets, these assets were like, they could have bought an asset from another company. So even though they were using Wonderwear at both assets, the developer and the naming convention was completely different. Yeah, this was, if we hadn't taken the unified namespace approach here, I mean, to put it in perspective, okay, let me, let me throw this out here. Or to this put it project, in frameworks. Yeah, this, this project went up against Signet at the same time. I think there were four companies, that, four vendors that bid it. It was Signet, Wonderware, Ignition. This was by far the biggest Ignition project at the time. It wasn't even close. When we did this project, no one thought that this was going to be possible, that you would be able to do it in Ignition. And had Kepware not developed the API, had inductive automation not developed uh, the federated tag provider. Uh, I mean, we even had to like build alarm management in it. You know, Dennis is the one who did the alarm management piece. Like it, it, most people didn't think it was even possible when we did it. When we, even to this day, when we tell the numbers, no one's like, what? You know, we discovered that oh, it was on this project. Named queries, named queries named, were. Named queries, uh, UDTs. Remember UDTs originally used 30% more memory than flat tags. And we had the that inductive automation had to fix that bug. Um, or actually, I don't think it was a bug. I think it was by design and they, they well, refactored it. I, I, I personally found like a half dozen bugs on UDTs. Um, yeah, they got sick of talking to you about the, but the, the point was, was that the other projects that this went up against, okay. So you want to talk about the value of the unified namespace, open architecture. The Wonderware bid was like $25 million. The Signet bid was like 75 million. It was like these huge numbers, like these massive, massive, massive numbers, like just absurd numbers. If you were to try and do this, I mean, you would spend tens of millions of dollars in any other, any other approach. And by the way, there's another integrator. So there was another, we didn't, we didn't bid um, phase two of it primarily because my engineers all said they were going to quit if we bid it. So we didn't bid the second, the second phase of it. And there, and so what we did was we trained another integrator, um, to work on it and they came behind and, 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 um, and now they've adopted the same technologies, right. And, and they've really grown in their business because they've developed the exact same development approach. So, um, you know, this stuff, you know, there's no OEE here, you know, this is oil and gas, but it goes back to that original question about the utilities. That's the fundamental difference. Like in utilities, you don't utilities, oil and gas, those are 24 hour days, seven day a week operations and they're not, they don't look at numbers like OE. Go ahead, Zach. You were going to ask a question. Sorry. Oh, um, <clears throat> yeah. So my, I guess my final thing was, uh, with Tesla entering the, like potentially entering the HVAC and home energy market, like kind of creating their own little Tesla ecosystem with their battery, their car. We, what, what would you think about an OEE that represented an overall energy effectiveness, which could accurately represent the energy efficiency of, of a home, which would, which, which could potentially lead Tesla further down the track of, you know, going fully, fully renewable. If we can not only increase the production of renewables, but decrease the consumption of wasted energy using a concept like OEE, what would your thoughts be like? This is just ending on like a kind of an open note. 
All right. So the, the truth is there are tinkerers out there who already do this. Okay. And I can think of one guy who I already know does this. Um, they basically use the Google nest API. So they use Google nest and what they do. And then they have a weather station and they, you know, essentially do calculations based on what is energy consumption over time compared to certain weather conditions. Right. So if the weather condition is X, Y, X, what is, what is my energy consumption? I make modifications and then I look at my energy consumption. Most people don't do that at that level. They'll just do it month to month. They'll look at their bill. Oh, let's replace some new windows. Oh, my bill went down $11. You know, they care about that kind of stuff. You know, the, you know, if you're using machine learning, like you want machine learning to predict, you know, to notify you that you left a window open, you know what I mean? Hey, there's something or your filter needs to be changed. I mean, look at when you change your filter, right. In your, in your, um, HB, HVAC unit, you don't change it at the optimal time. You do exactly what manufacturers do. You set preventative maintenance time. You know what I mean? You say, Oh, I'm going to change this, these filters every 90 days, or I'm going to change, you know, and that's what you do. Even Google nest does that. It basically tells you, Hey, time to change your filter, you know, every 90 days or every, I think it's on mine. It's like every six months, you can do this using Google nest already. Google nest will give you a report on your energy usage and you can use a smart meter in your house, which I do. I actually, uh, my house in New York where I was, um, I actually have a smart flow meter on the, I have what's that you have the Zigbee. Yeah, no, the census. It's called census, but I've got the census. I've got the Google Nest, and I have the smart electrical meter um, on my on my house. And basically, I mean, it wasn't very hard. I just googled, I googled like, hey, how do I talk to these? And I bring them in through um, Raspberry Pis and Arduinos, and I'm collecting the data now. All I'm doing right now is just storing that data, um, you know, every minute, and I'm just, and then I'll play with it and kind of see how it could work. But Yes, that's coming. I mean, you're going to have a you're going to have an efficiency score on your home and it's going to be the beauty of that is that is something that can be doesn't have to be technology driven. I prefer to but there are solution driven solutions out there that are going to be able and to And Tesla would be a that would be a example right. of a solution driven one, huh? Right, absolutely. I mean, manufacturing you can't go solution centric. If you go solution centric, there's always going to be equipment there are going to always be processes. There are always going to be testing unit. There are always going to be something in your facility that is was made by someone other than the solution provider you you selected. And then you either have to integrate it somehow manually, or you just have to leave that data out. So, all right, guys. All right, cool. Thanks for awesome. joining. Uh, yeah, thanks everybody. Uh, thank you for all the questions. Hopefully, I got to them. If not, we'll we'll hit them up next week. See you guys. Stopping. All right, did I answer everything?